You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. We're broadcasting live from our offices here in the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, and we've got a great show for you today. One issue we've taken a great interest in over the years has been the emergence of the gigabit city that seemed to begin with Chattanooga in 2010 when they became the first city in the country to have gigabit speed in broadband um, both upload and download and overnight became the fastest internet city in america chattanooga and people who had had only thought of that as a song now started to focus on the city anew and it has um quite emerged quite successfully from this experiment and we then saw another expansion with, with google fiber then doing the same so we're now somewhat in the mature era of the or at least uh, early stages of the gigabit era and i want to bring back an, an old friend of the show his name is david sandell with sandell associates in in st louis and he's an accomplished executive architect focused on the planning and execution of smart or gigabit cities, or as we would say in New England, wicked smart. Um, and uh, he's the president of Sandell Associates. And it's it's an issue, very interesting issue, because there's a lot of intersections going on here, both in terms of technology, um, economic development theory, urban theory. And so uh, we're thrilled to have David back. Can you hear us? 
Yes, good morning, Ben, and thank you. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back here on the show. Thank you. And um, we're just having an interesting conversation offline. Um, so hopefully we can we can keep it going. So, David, I guess for the uninitiative, um, uninitiated, for those who don't understand, what, what exactly is a gigabit city? Uh, a simple definition would be a gigabit city is where um, current legacy um, internet infrastructure such as DSL is replaced with fiber optic, optic infrastructure and uh, transmission speeds of uh, 1,000 megabits per second bidirectional or available at low cost. And so we, we talked about Chattanooga being the kind of the groundbreaker in 2010. How widespread are gigabit cities in America today? Well, uh, Gigabit City um, and Chattanooga, as you mentioned, in 2010 was the groundbreaker behind all of this. Um, they were confronted with a very challenging economic situation in Chattanooga. They were a traditional legacy manufacturing town that had lost all of its industry and gone into a state of decline. And... Uh, the uh, energy power board, the utility there, um, decided that they were going to move forward and develop a next generation platform to uh, recover from an economic development point of view. And uh, they went through a series of lawsuits in the beginning, challenges from Comcast and others, but they eventually uh, made it and they, uh, they later on acquired a grant for um, Smart Grid to develop fiber optic capacity to have a greater efficiency and control of power distribution. And when they did that, they overbuilt the fiber optic network in Chattanooga, which became the foundation for their uh, gigabit service. And uh, today I would say there are approximately 12 gigabit cities in the United States in various stages of development and or stages of challenge. And um, we have to keep in mind as we have this conversation today that even though this all started in 2010 and 2011, we're still in this very early stage of development because, um, Bennett, as you mentioned, there are so many intersections on this topic that um, it's going to take a while for this to work its way through the system so that we reinvent our uh, urban planning methodology and our economic development planning uh, mechanisms. So um, I think we're going to see a lot more. Well, I, I think you, you hit on an interesting point when we're talking offline, that we're talking about a transition from an industrial economy to the, the post, I guess, I don't know what the best word is, technological economy. And we're restructuring our cities to facilitate that the latter. Correct. So in our previous industrial revolution, I think it would be fair to say that um, we were based upon traditional manufacturing and a real estate model where people moved into cities and took jobs. We created a new educational system called the public high school to give people the basic skill sets to work in those factories. And most young men in high school took a shop class to develop the basic skills to work in those factories. And young women took a home economics class to raise a family with, you know, four or more children, which was quite common. 
now we're in this transition zone where we're seeing this behind us and there's a lot of stuff coming. Um, we're seeing uh, autonomous vehicles on horizon automation, um, high-speed connectivity, Internet of Things, and we're really heading into a digital economy. And I would say that the digital economy now is really about community and data. How do we capture the greatest degree of talent within our region, and how do we activate it and create the greatest economic impact utilizing uh, communications and sharing information or data? Now, um, excuse me. <coughs> As you can tell, I have a little bit of a cough. Now, uh, <laughs> after Chattanooga, let me back up. In terms of Chattanooga, before they were a gigabit city, if you had to rank the 100 top cities for technology, um, would Chattanooga have even been on that list? No. It, in fact, it wouldn't have been on that list. It would have been way off the list and on the bottom of the floor. Um, <laughs> they were. If anyone has ever you know, gone to Chattanooga, when you drive into town, um, particularly three or four years ago, you would see a vast array of older industrial buildings that were all no longer used with broken windows. So we're really talking about a significant change in the uh, Chattanooga economy. And to take that one thought further, about four years ago, three to four years ago, the um, city of Chattanooga, the mayor, and their economic development people streamed an event um, over the Internet to discuss the impact that this had had on the economic development of Chattanooga and what they had realized. And after going through a period of 50 years of decline on that streamed event three or four years ago, they announced that they had reversed the uh, path of economic development and they were now actually fully recovering. This to me was a huge announcement that a, a small town like this could say that but to my incredible surprise, when that streaming event happened, no major news service in the United States picked it up. Really? But, but the entire future is about what's happened there. There's um, um and by the way, as usual, the show notes are on cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And uh, we have a quote from a study done on gangman bandwidth, American style, done by GigU. And it said that upgrading the Bromwood network to Chattanooga to world-leading gigabit speed has transformed the community from a slow, declining, and inflating urban balloon to the fastest-growing city in Tennessee, attracting a beehive of tech startups that all thrive on big data and super high-speed internet. That's what Gangman Bid Bandwidth can do in America. And you know, I've I've been monitoring Chattanooga along the way, and they've been having forums where people from Silicon Valley go out to Chattanooga. And if you ask, you know, I, I would dare to venture a guess that the number of people from Silicon Valley that went to Chattanooga from 2000 and 2010 is probably less than 12. And you know, here they're having their major panels uh, involving Silicon Valley leaders. That's absolutely correct. Um, it's quite amazing. Um, in fact, um, during the same time period, I was uh, working in uh, Nashville. Tennessee, and I was working on a project for the National Electric Service, and we were developing a uh, business model, for a dark fiber leasing business model. And being in Nashville, observing what was going on in Chattanooga was fascinating because in the beginning, 
you know, there were quite a few lawsuits that were um, brought towards the uh, utility there by Comcast and others. And um, Nashville was watching this with great interest, wondering, you know, uh, how would how would the national economy develop if something similar was to happen in Nashville at some point with with a uh, service provider on NES polls, for example. And um, I think it's quite an achievement what happened in uh, Chattanooga and that this real true spirit of American innovation and small business and doing something that's almost impossible taking place is uh, outstanding and will certainly be referenced in the history books. Now, the next big event in terms of Chattanooga and becoming a gig city was Google's and the launch of Google Fiber for starters, and its first right. city, which, which if it, those who do may remember that time, there were a number of cities campaigning to be selected as the Google Fiber test city, to the point that one city in Kansas, Topeka, to to be to name it for precisely, actually changed its name to Google for like a week to show how committed they were and how much they wanted this honor, uh, but the honor instead went to Kansas City. And why don't you, you've actually studied this. Why don't you tell us about what, what happened in Kansas City? Yeah, another really good question there. Um, so, as you mentioned, uh, Google Fiber uh, announced that they were looking for a city. And uh, over a thousand cities responded and did it in many different types of uh, ways, some prolific like Topeka. And um, it, it's a rumor that in the background that tens of thousands of cities actually applied, uh, but there were only a thousand that were actually um, a- acknowledged. And then the uh, award announcement came out, and this was around, I think, March of 2011. And um, once it was announced in Kansas City, there was literally a jubilant celebration that uh, Google Fiber had chosen Kansas City in the heart of America, that uh, there was a bright future for Kansas City to look forward to. Um, I think there was some sense of feeling that their economy had been rescued by this. And the uh, celebrations and press releases went on for several months. And then, as that died down a little bit, the leadership of Google um, Fiber uh, met with the mayors and said, okay, we're going to go back to Palo Alto now and we're going to design this. We want you to figure out what to do with it. And I think when that conversation took place, that um, Kansas City leadership, uh, you know, the shoe dropped on the floor thinking, my gosh, uh, how how are we going to do this? How are we going to uh, take this moment and this opportunity and uh, realize the impact of this. I think it was also apparent at that time that Google Fiber didn't understand cities and that cities didn't understand technology and there was a disconnect there. And I think that disconnect continued for a couple of years after that. Um, But what happened was the mayors of Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, decided to create something called the Mayor's Bi-State Innovation Team. And the Mayor's Bi-State Innovation Team, its purpose was to create a long-term strategy and short-term tactics of how to make use of Google Fiber 
from an economic development point of view to reach these goals and objectives. So about that time that this is going on, <clears throat> I made a beeline from St. Louis to Kansas City to observe this happening because I've had a lot of uh, background in public and private sector initiatives over the previous 15 years, and I wanted to see this go down and how it would organize itself. So I started going to a lot of the different uh, public sector meetings, getting to know a lot of people. Um, Kansas City had always been good to me over the years. I had uh, worked on a number of different projects with Burns McDonald in Kansas City, a uh, nationally known civil engineering firm. And uh, I started going to the mayor's bi-state innovation team meeting, and the mayor's had put six persons on this uh, committee, six from Kansas City, Missouri, and six from Kansas City, Kansas. And they were tasked with coming up with a plan to utilize uh, Google Fiber from an economic development point of view. They had eight months in which to do this, and... As each month went by, they would gather more and more information. When the, when the uh, Mayor's Bi-State Innovation Team started, there was a lot of excitement. But as each month went by, the energy in the room would slowly be ratcheting down. Because even though everyone was gathering a lot of information, this was so new, there was no sense of how to pull it together or what to do. Then in about the fifth and sixth months, um, the uh, committee became more challenging. Um, some of the members were concerned. They didn't know how to do this or how to grasp it. And as time went by towards the seventh month, it was you know a month before they had to release something. So they asked um, the uh, co-chairs of the Bi-State Innovation Team, asked myself and another gentleman by the name of Aaron Deacon if we could help them. And so with three weeks left to go, we took all the information and we uh, developed what is called the Kansas City Google Fiber Playbook, which is called Playing to Win. And that playbook is the story, the long-term strategy, the short-term tactics, and the plays by which to activate Google Fiber and realize its economic development across all sectors of the economy. Having that document was actually critical to Kansas City moving forward at that time. And uh, once that was announced, um, the conversation started to align itself more in Kansas City. Uh, there were individuals, groups, organizations that took responsibility for the different plays that were in the playbook. And there's um, three plays that are in the playbook I'd like to mention. One of them was we recommended forming something called the Gigabit City Summit, which was a global roundtable for smart and gigabit city leaders over Cisco's telepresence network to discuss the issues of leadership planning and funding of these large-scale initiatives and how to actually pull it off. And we um, ran several sessions of that with Singapore, Kansas City, Toronto, Amsterdam, Barcelona, involved and that was a very positive development got a lot of visibility for kansas city and then an organization called casey digital drive was developed which was the steward for the playbook and activating the plays mm -hmm. and um, all, almost all those plays today are fully active and in process and then the third one was a public sector uh, incubator called 
um, the digital sandbox, and that has also been successful today. I think it's raised about $30 million worth of investments um, for small companies. So this was just the early stage, winding up the program, getting the community conversation going, having a marketing strategy in place, and then they were off to the races in 2012 to 2013. So be, before we um, do Kansas City, here we come. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to, from a word from our sponsors. But we come back. We'll talk about Kansas City and more on the state of the Gigabit Nation. You're listening to Penn and Kelly on Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Cranberry FM. More of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts. We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Circle. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Synergize your search engine education from 101 to rock star level only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking to David Sandell about the state of the Gigabit Nation. Before we go back to David, though, I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, The California Bar IP section is having a webinar at noon today, Pacific Time, on the case of Hassel v. Bird, which is the... um, decision that will allow a, a lawyer to remove a Yelp review that Yelp is appealing to the California Supreme Court. Um, I will be moderating the panel and we'll have um, David Gingras, a, f- a lawyer for Ripoff Report, and Carl Cronenberg, who's been on the show several times. We'll be talking about that at noon. Um, there's a link on the um, show notes and uh, or you can go to the California Bar IP section for information to register. So, um, we're back with David. David, we're talking about Kansas City, and uh, how has the, the Google experiment in Kansas City worked out? Because you know, Google has announced there's this scaling back fiber, so it's kind of led to a reassessment of has the Google fiber, fiber experiment succeeded? Well, I think the first thing I would say is I would go back to that statement I made at the beginning of our session, which is, Um, We're at an early stage of this. The transformational impact is going to be great. 
And um, over the last um, six years, as Google Fiber proceeded, technology has rapidly advanced forward, and we will continue to see that and accelerating in the future. So I would say we're at an inflection point. We went through the first uh, peak of Google Fiber, and I say that in a broad sense, just not focused on Google, and that we're now in a transition in a valley, and what's contributed to that valley are several things. Um, The first one is is that uh, the original theory behind Google Fiber was is that if we opened up the bandwidth curve to everyone in general, that it would create more innovations faster and that we could have more uh, economic development impact and uh, justify the business case for the fiber um, investment. So we do know that uh, Google Fiber and high-speed fiber networks in general are more efficient. They're faster. They have faster download speeds. You can use your cloud applications faster. And I believe that there was a report developed by the Fiber to the Home organization that said that um, if you use a gigabit connection, you will gain 40 hours per year of your time back due to faster download speeds, which um, is an impressive number. Um, Plus also the the, the study, they had a study that also indicated it would increase your home values and that it, it added to the GDP of a city. That's exactly right. To the home value, I believe it was about $5,000, and to the GDP of a city. Um, These are all really interesting data. There's a lot of depth in them and other issues related to them that um, we should uh, talk about a little bit here later in the call. Sure. um, Yeah, actually, I'm just putting up the study, which is on the show notes. $5,437 value to a typical home was added by this. mm -hmm. But sorry, right. go ahead. Yeah, so um, so Google Fiber launched, and one of the things that was found out was that the cost of construction, I believe, was higher than expected. I mean, if we put this in a framework that, you know, here's Google coming out and making a big splash of this. There's a lot of excitement. So that creates inflation in the uh, fiber construction market. I would think that that would make the cost of construction and the cost of labor higher for building such large uh, uh, networks. It was also found out that constructing these networks is is physically difficult and challenging because a lot of different construction techniques are used. Um, Trenching, boring, and so forth can be uh, laborious and take a lot of time. And then the third part is, is, you know, because of this high cost of construction, the wireless world is looking at this saying, well, if it costs them $10,000 to do a lateral, for example, well, we can certainly do it for less than that using wireless technology. So the wireless industry spun up much faster to uh, solve this local distribution problem. And then they began to intersect. So in the last two years, the wireless issue in small cell became more efficient and cheaper and here you have the higher construction cost of fiber taking place. And once they intersected, the business case um, changed. And that's what we've seen now in the last year is that we're on the verge of small cell proliferation. 
and we're on the verge of 5G adoption probably in two to three years. And there's a minor gold rush going on for uh, providers and small cell providers to uh, pick up pole attachments and mounting spaces wherever they can get them to prepare for the eventual arrival of um, high-speed ubiquitous wireless, which will be complemented by fiber both together as a hybrid. And um, this is the space we're in right now. We're in the transition zone. On the other side is 5G, smart city IoT. What we just came from was moving from legacy service provider to fiber networks, and now we're in the middle. There's a, a just a, an anecdote I want to add, and before we transition, the we think of gigabit technology as being something that's of appeal to to tech companies, and and I'm sure it is, but um, Louis Louisville um, Business Journal reported a about Louisville considering gigabit technology. And they noted that in 2014, New York-based eyewear retailer Warby Parker, not exactly a high-tech company, they were looking to, and they opened a, a corporate office that created 250 jobs in Nashville. But one of the cities, other cities considered was Denver, Salt Lake City, and Louisville. And one of the dings, not the only ding, but one of the dings on Louisville was its lack of suboptimal internet speeds. You know, its lack of a high-speed uh, broadband infrastructure. And um, yeah. so, and Warby Parker eyeglasses, you know, companies like that are looking at it, so that this tells you how important it is. Now, um, yes. go ahead. It is, it's literally the way the world is heading, and there's different degrees of education and understanding around this. And we're going to see this accelerate a little bit more as we head into small cell and 5G because people are going to want to be around these highly mobile, very high-speed environments. For example, 5G has the ability to have a one gigabit connection directly to your mobile device and have multiple of these gigabit connections within the footprint of a small cell. This is a massive change in internet internet infrastructure capabilities. So. Um, companies need to be aware of this thing, need to get educated, and need to um, consider what's their strategic plan, where and when do they want to fit into this. Do they want to be a leader? Do they want to be in the middle? Do they want to lag? Now, um, looking at Kansas City, uh, I'm reminded of a, a story. I don't, I don't know for those of you who may remember the, the product Shake and Bake. You, uh, you would put chicken and um, the seasoning that, that was pre-packaged and you would fry it or bake it or whatever and you would have this nice fried chicken or baked chicken or whatever and I, I had a neighbor as a kid who was a, a little bit slow and she actually just took the mix for shake and bake, rolled it into balls and put it in the oven and then was going to surprise the family and then when she opened the oven she was expecting that somehow chicken would have appeared anyway, missing that essential ingredient and uh, and I mentioned that story because we're seeing some articles about Kansas City, and one is a notable a Bloomberg article that says, you know, how come Kansas City didn't become the next Silicon Valley? And it, it I I'm suspecting you're going to say that this is it's pretty early to make that judgment. I think it is early, but um, I think it's also very important to notice these early stage effects 
and the expectations and how things are at this stage um, to understand how the future might appear over the next few years. So the first thing that happened was that winning the award for Kansas City gave them a co-branding, essentially, with the Google Fiber name. That put a lot of attention on Kansas City, period, regardless of Google Fiber. So that improved their economic prospects after that. It ignited uh, many community conversations, and there's unquestionably that, uh, you know, as some individuals and entrepreneurs and small data-oriented companies move there. Um, however, at the same time, the whole quest of Google Fiber was these next-generation applications that will have uh, massive productivity gains have not arrived. Um, if you look at Kansas City in general, I think you can see uh, many entrepreneurs still um, grappling with how to use a gigabit of speed. Right. And um, I think that's telling um, of two things that, you know, we're, we're beyond the beginning stage of the Internet. I mean, over the last 20 years, a lot of these sort of fundamental applications have been developed. So we, we will expect to continue to see great things happen on the Internet, but they might not happen at the same frequency as they did in the first 15 or 20 years but they'll certainly be there. And the other thing is, is that um, I think the promise of high-speed networks is really realized when everybody has it. I mean, imagine, for example, if you push the button and suddenly the whole United States had a gigabit connectivity to everyone. That would transform the country overnight in a way because if there was uh, high-speed video conferencing Home to home, business to business, we see a rapid restructuring of the workforce, how people work and related to each other. But on the other hand, uh, Google had hoped that this would ignite uh, a fundamental change in service provider deployment, and it's going slower than anticipated. So, really realizing some of these benefits from a fiber based network are going to take longer than thought. However, as I mentioned before, you know, we have small cell moving very rapidly now and 5G on the horizon. So it might be that 5G is what's going to pull in this new dynamic environment, 5G fed by hybrid uh, fiber wireless networks. Who who benefits most from gigabit technologies? Are there certain types of businesses or there sectors that really should realize that this benefits them and they should be championing it? Yes, without question. Um, obviously, bandwidth-oriented and data-oriented businesses um, make use of this. But again, once again, it's sort of like this stratification of the economy. Uh, you've got big companies on the top and smaller companies on the bottom. So obviously, you know, large healthcare firms and large entities and universities use a lot of bandwidth. But down the uh, food chain, when you have small businesses using this, to leverage their uh, their application space, um, it's really the smaller businesses that will benefit the most because it will help them to grow faster. <laughs> Whereas if in the case of large institutions, it's more of an administrative capacity type thing. And um, so, in terms of what should be 
what should we expect for cities to emerge as the next Silicon Valley? I, I guess, is it just a recognition that this is a long-term process? It is a long-term process, but I think you're heading in the right direction that um, during this whole experiment over the last um, six years, in the middle of this, a report came out by the Brookings Institute called um, the uh, uh, Innovation Districts of the Future of America. And they described geographic parts of town where large institutions aligned with large organizations to create innovation communities, carry on a uh, synergistic entrepreneurial conversation and get more things to happen faster within a certain footprint. Um, in St. Louis right now, for example, the uh, Cortex Innovation District, which is um, a collaboration between Washington University, St. Louis University, and the surrounding hospitals, is the fastest-growing innovation district in the United States right now. And um, I think this is the beginning of this type of development where we have this new type of American factory and it has uh, high-speed infrastructure capability to go with it. And these become the focus areas of application development as this next round of Internet development takes place. But as we um, look closer at the Brookings model of innovation districts, uh, we realize that, you know, the future of the Internet is that it has ubiquitous access for everyone at high speed and that innovation districts, although they are powerful economic mechanisms, um, tend to exclude a large number of players just because they're institutionally organized. For example, um, you, know, you could say that an innovation district is sort of like a um, private sector golf course, but there's actually a lot of people who are public sector golf players. How do we pick them all up? So what our company came to the conclusion was was that the large-scale Google Fiber deployment in the beginning was an experiment and was a good idea, but the way to actually do this and lead was to start with small, really small footprints, and we call them innovation neighborhoods, where we align organizations, resources, infrastructure, and coolness factor to create environments where coders, IoT developers, smart city developers will all want to be and hang out to create the next generation internet and everything associated with it. And we actually launched a company a year ago called iNeighborhoods, and that's I as an indigo, iNeighborhoods.us. And the whole purpose of that was we took everything that we learned over the last six years, put it into a single contiguous community development process so that innovation neighborhoods could be developed and deployed in different parts of the United States. And we just announced yesterday a project called Smart and Connected Community Platform, or SCCP. And for our listeners, this is being announced for the first time in the U.S. on a radio on Bennett's show. Yay! And um, <laughs> that's, that's how it works, right? And um, we think the smart connected community platform will be one of the ways that cities will adopt um, this type of innovation process and utilize these to develop their smart city initiatives. 
And if anyone wants to take a peek at that, there is a uh, URL called smartconnectedcommunity.splashthat.com, and that outlines that entire initiative. So the FCCP, in a way, is like the total reduction of what started in Kansas City Google Fiber in 2011 has now been reduced to the SCCP, at least from our perspective. Well, we're going to get smart by um, talking to some of our sponsors, but we'll be right back and we more with David Sandell. You're listening to the Cyberlawn Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Thanks, Brian. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Online anytime. This is Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're talking to David Sandell about the Gigabit Nation and smart cities in general. And just a, a short detour, you know, having um, since we're talking really about the future of American cities and having myself uh, studied urban planning briefly uh, earlier in my career, I want to give a shout out for a documentary that's coming out, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. And that's a documentary about Jane Jacobs, who was a, a groundbreaking urban theorist who really led to uh, cities becoming more diversified, more livable and walkable. And uh, she was just a, a housewife who stood up to uh, Robert Moses, who was a very powerful um, New York City leader who just liked to build highways and monstrous projects. And she was successfully um, challenged him and won. And it's, so it's, it's an interesting story in American urban history. So we'll, we'll have a, the trailer and information on a link to where you can find screenings on our show notes. Um, but David, <laughs> um, that's that's the cinematic aspect of today. But um, so when you look at the Brooks and Brookings study, one thing that struck me in the language of it was that it, there's a quote from Peter Hall. Um, Innovation districts embody the very essence of cities, an aggregation of talent, 
driven people assembled in close quarters who exchange ideas and knowledge in what urban historian Peter Hall calls a dynamic process of innovation, imitation, and improvement. And so it it seems that the idea of innovation district isn't just giving them this area that the, the technology needs to succeed, but it's allowing them to, I guess, bounce off each other and and enjoy engage and get that um, you know kind of connection with others like them around them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And um, I, you know, we looked into this and I, I tend to agree with the Brookings model that that's true, that innovation districts do pull these uh, various facets together, but we have to realize that that is a, a generic definition. As, um, as other people have looked at that, I was giving a uh, talk at the Smart Cities Summit in Toronto last year and I met a gentleman who was the big data lead for IBM and they had been working to develop an innovation district in Medellin, Colombia, and they had gone ahead and done that. And he then said that um, we realized that during the course of developing an innovation district, that if an innovation district wasn't fully integrated into the fabric of community, then in the long term it would become an economic liability. And what he meant by that was that um, inclusion is the theme of the future. It's everything. We can have a focus on, you know, an innovation district that's uh, institutional, but what about everybody who's outside of the realm of the culture of the institution? How do we include them all? So we developed this concept of innovation neighborhood, which was really everyone else outside of the traditional innovation district. And then when you put innovation neighborhoods together with innovation districts, and everyone could be part of this uh, development. Everyone could uh, be a player and find their spot in this. And we took that concept and we we were asked to write um, a chapter in this book that had just recently been released by Springer. It's called Smart Economy in Smart Cities. And it's a um, global study of um, 13 different city initiatives in 10 different countries, and we were asked to write a chapter that's the only American chapter in the book, and we call it the St. Louis model. And Bennett, this model in this chapter speaks to everything that you and I have discussed today. Infrastructure, organizations, resources, innovation districts, coolness factor, how can every city use this type of platform that's been developed in St. Louis? to initiate their smart city initiatives in ways that are really organic and sustainable. And so that book is out there. And then I also mentioned we uh, just announced the Smart Connected Community Platform um, yesterday, and that's out on the URL, <laughs> smartconnectedcommunity.splashthat.com. And on May 2nd, we are having a uh, event in St. Louis to discuss what we've developed and put in place and built already and the plan moving forward, the contiguous community engagement planning process and how we see rolling this out. And one of the main features of the Smart Connected Community platform is we're going to put, we're proposing putting a very high-speed, high-capacity wireless network over Art Hill in Forest Park in St. Louis. And that Art Hill would be the place where anyone from any walk of life could be able to use this during a 
smart city night or a healthcare night or uh, education night, and thousands of people could have devices or tablets and explore these new things that are coming, um, vet them, discuss business models, issues, education, or whatever. And we think that all cities are going to have to do things like this as they learn to understand and absorb what's coming in this next digital revolution. We we were talking offline about what cities get it right, you know, in terms of being a smart city. You know, who who does the Oscar go to? <laughs> and, and don't say La La Land. <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, we're talking about a menu here of many different flavors. Yes. And do I want to restrict myself to one flavor when there's so much more to come? I mean, there's there's no question that. Um, you know, New York has some great things going on. San Francisco has some great things going on. Amsterdam, Barcelona, and Singapore um, all have incredible things going on. And then we have this huge story of economic recovery coming from Chattanooga. And then you have Kansas City in the middle in the heartland that was also very highly affected by the uh, outsourcing and jobs and the uh, the the fall of the uh, the changing of the guard with the uh, industrial revolution, and I think we're going to see more come from Kansas City in this next round as technologies come. But I think it's too early to sort of pin an award on who's doing this right. There's too much coming, too much change, and the big thing of all this is it's not about infrastructure. It's really about social impact. What are the cities that end up successfully realizing social impact and inclusion and use technology? As I've always said, high-impact smart or gigabit cities are 90% sociology and 10% infrastructure, and that's really the truth. So once we start moving more away from this technology discussion into, well, how do we achieve social impact and include technology, I think we'll start seeing um, things that look more like winners. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking back to the the early days of tech, you know, and the, the birth of the Route 128 corridor in, in Massachusetts, where you had these these dying cities that were former mill towns like Lowell, Massachusetts, that found new life with a Texas instrument plant. And, and this is really kind of the next stage of that evolution. You look at what happened in Chattanooga. Um, it's just a larger scale of what happened in Lowell in the 80s. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, um, you know, that part of western Massachusetts is very beautiful in all these small towns where we used to have these mills. And Massachusetts has put in place a very effective broadband development policy, and many of these communities are building high-speed infrastructure. I would take your point one step further and say, that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when we were at the peak of the last Industrial Revolution, that, you know, Main Street America was where everything happened. This right. Is where people went at the end of the day to do stuff, socialize and relate to each other, and they did it using paper and telephones and large automobiles. And we're about to see Main Street America rebirth under this higher-speed wireless capabilities that are coming fed by fiber, and, you know, I, I call this smart gigabit Main Street. We're going to see this reinvented, and it will cause uh, communities and cities to relook at those areas and how can we, you know, adjust them from an urban planning view? How can we put in uh, more community amenities and make them cool to attract different types of creative persons who would be 
attracted to the story of that community. So um, there's a it's lot in, to come here. Um, it, it's interesting because what you evoke of you know that 50s that sense of you know you had to be on Main Street. In fact, there's an yeah. area in, in, in Los Angeles near Beverly Hills called Miracle Mile. And the reason why it's called Miracle Mile is actually it's a it's a jab. It was because because it was this retail center that wasn't on Main Street, and it was called Miracle Mile because they thought it'd be a miracle if it succeeds. And but you know, so, you know the cars changed the, the shape of Los Angeles, and then um, people did start driving out there into Beverly Hills and elsewhere. And so what you're saying is, is there's a promise for a new life for Main Street. Yeah, I think there's a, a a new potential life for previous main streets, and then we're going to see some new types of main streets, which are going to totally blow us away. It's totally different, um, you know, connected living spaces and uh, with unique urban planning ideas involved in them, and we don't even know what they're going to be yet. But with all the types of technology that are coming with, um, um, you know, the power regeneration, microgrids, small living spaces, autonomous vehicles. Uh, it's almost mind-boggling to consider how this urban planning will be reshaped. So, Dave, we only have a few minutes left. Um, tell us a little bit about Sandell & Associates and if you have anything upcoming you want to announce. Well, Sandell & Associates, um, we work with cities and community organizations to accelerate the development of their smart and gigabit city initiative we build a smarter city and a better gigabit world um, we a year ago launched iNeighborhoods.us and the purpose of that was to put into a single package this innovation neighborhood concept um, we are having on may 2nd in st louis the um, public launch of the smart and connected community platform at the third degree glass factory in St. Louis um, with our partners. And that should be very interesting. And um, we also mentioned the book, Smart Economy and Smart Cities by Springer, a study of 13 cities in 10 different countries internationally. There's only one American chapter in there and that's the St. Louis model. And much of what Bennett and I talked about today is rolled up into that one chapter in that book. And, you know, Ben, it would be very interesting to con continue this conversation um, by having the co-authors of the book on this panel and pick up on that Bloomberg report yes. about how can other communities develop into Silicon Valleys, which we think is possible, but you got to have the recipe right, which has all these factors in it that you talked about. So if people want to follow you on Twitter, David, are you on Twitter? Yes, uh, I Neighborhoods. I Neighborhoods. That's I as an Indigo or D Sandal for Sandal Associates. Great. Well, I want to thank you, David. It's been fascinating as usual. You know, I have a great passion for this issue, and um, it's always fun to have you on. And best of luck um, with the book and this upcoming event in St. Louis. It's it you you you're at the forefront of something very important, and um, we're glad that you're such a good friend of the show. But thanks again, everyone. Check out our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Check us out on Twitter at cyberlawradio. And as usual, check out the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. This is Bennett Kelly from Santa Monica saying thanks to David. Join us next time on Cyberlaw Business Report. Have a great week, guys. Thank you.
The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.